is my privilege to preach to us, to open God's word to us for the month of July. Um, and God is, has placed on my heart the, the topic of, of emotions, um, more specifically the topic of, or, or the uh, idea of what the Psalms do with emotions. If, if you are familiar with the Psalms, you know that they are emotional Parts of scripture. There, there's scripture that that leans a little a little closer to the head, a little more of the of the theology, and, and that's not where it ends. But but a little more in that direction. The Psalms lean very deep into um, into our emotions, and and we are in our second week of <clears throat> of studying how emotions are handled in the Psalms. And I wanted to remind us why we would study this. Why would we look at emotions in the Psalms? And um, emotions are, are part of God's image in us. They, they are created um, by him. We, we are emotional beings because God is an emotional being. Also, emotions are massively important and affect every area of our lives. And one way that humans express God-given emotions is through poetry and singing. So then it makes sense. It's not coincidence that, that the Psalms are songs. They are poems, and they were written to awake to express and to shape the emotional life of God's people. And so I want to take them for what they are, take them for what they were intended to be, and use them in, in that intended way to awaken, to express, and to shape the emotional lives of us, of, of God's people. Last week we looked at Psalm 13 and we dealt with anger. Um, and this week I want to look uh, in Psalm 42 and, and take a look at what the Bible has to say about sadness. So um, the the title of our of our of our uh, series is get real, and so this week I want us to get real with sadness. Um, let's open it a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll dive into into our time our time this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you tell us what is true. Thank you that you um, are real and you uh, know what's best for us. I pray that we would we would see your word, we would understand it. Um, and then, more importantly, we would apply it. We would, we would listen to maybe the hard words this morning and, um, and understand that they are from you, the one who loves us most of all, and the one who is, is strong and the one who is wise. I pray that you would make us more like you through your word this morning. Amen. Um, what makes you sad? Good way to start sermon, right? What makes you sad? What, when do you get discouraged? And, and for different people, it's different things. I, I know myself, I am prone towards sadness or discouragement when I don't feel good, like when I'm sick. Not just like my nose is running, but like when I'm like sick, sick, like a sinus infection or, you know, that like, ugh. like I, I, and I've told Jess because I love her and because I want to be a good communicator. I'm like, when I get sick, everything is terrible. I, I, I don't know that I'm that, like, stereotypical guy who, like, I'm dying. That's, I don't think that's usually where I go. You can follow up with her afterwards. Um, but more like, everything's terrible. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe I should find another job. What are we going to do about these boys? You know, every, it's church, you know, every, I don't know what it is. But it just, I find myself prone in that direction. It doesn't always go all the way, but, you know, to, to, deep, dark discouragement, but I find myself led in that direction when I don't feel good. But what about you? What leads you toward discouragement or toward sadness in your life? 
Um, is, it, is it physical illness or is it relational hardships? Is there a relationship in your life that is that, that just pulls at your heart and it just, and it just you know, drains the, the joy from you? Is it monetary difficulties? Do you look around and you just don't see how everything's going to work? You, you, you know, your, your out, outlays are <laughs> greater than your inputs and you just don't know how it's all going to come together. And it, and it weighs on your heart, or is it even just unfulfilled expectations? I think a lot of times, the again, kind of the stereotypical um, midlife crisis is this. You know, a person looks around, or they, they get to a spot, and they're like, wait, this isn't what it should have been. This isn't what the plan was. They, you know, my expectations are not fulfilled. And, and a lot of times, as I thought about this, it kind of surprised me, but then made a lot of sense that a lot of times I think our sadness has everything to do with expectations. Not always, but I think a lot of times it does. A lot of times we get in our heads what something is going to be, whether that's a marriage or whether that's having kids or whether that's a job or whether that's planning a church or whatever it might be. We get this picture in our heads and it's never quite that way, right? I mean, just statistically, it's not going to quite be that way. And so a lot of times our, our expectations, something that we never actually had, but we expected to have, doesn't come true, and it, and it begins to, to drain us. It begins to, to push us toward, toward sadness and discouragement. Ultimately, I think we can define sadness as how we respond to loss. How do you respond to loss? That loss may be of something or someone we had a family member, you know, maybe a death close to you, a loss of something that you had, someone you had, or again, something that we expected to have. Sadness is, is not a foreign idea to us. Um, but a lot of times, a lot of times sadness goes unknown, doesn't it? A lot of, you know, there, there, are, there are losses, there are difficulties that people can see, you know, in the people around them. But a lot of times, the deepest, darkest sadness that people deal with is one that no one, if anyone, knows anything about. And it just buries them. And they don't know what to do. Um, Psalm 42 is where we'll be this morning. And, and Psalm 42 was almost certainly written by David. Maybe not. We don't quite know, but every, there's a lot of evidence that's, that it points to, to it being David. And, and if so, it was, it was likely penned when he was fleeing from his son, Absalom. I mentioned last week, I mentioned David's inter- interaction <laughs> with Absalom. And um, if you don't know the story, Absalom was David's son. Um, David had been ruling um, Israel for about 37 years when Absalom shoved him off the throne. It was a well-planned, over a long period of time, Absalom came in and he orchestrated a bunch of events and he, and he, had a, he uh, went through with a coup and David's off the throne and he's running for his life. And Absalom isn't content with just the throne. He wants to kill David. He wants to kill his own father. And this is probably when Psalm 42 is written, is in this unbelievable time in David's life where he's running um, from, from, again, his, his only son. And in this psalm, we see David at, his lowest point. We see him at his, his, his worst. So let's read Psalm 42. It's not going to be on the screen. I didn't, I didn't prep the, the uh, slide makers for this. So Psalm 42, um, it's only 11 verses, so I want to read it through, and then we'll, we'll kind of see, see what God has to say for us to us through this. 
Verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in the procession um, to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise him, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mizner. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love and at night, his song is with me a prayer to God for my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David starts off this this psalm with a relatively well-known verse. Um, uh, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, a God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. A lot of times, I don't know about you, a lot of times I've heard this verse in a radically different context than, than what we find it here in Psalm 42, where it's like this nice, sweet idea, like, hey, you know how deer like water? you know what? That's how I feel about God. I like him too. Yay! That is, that is not how David is, is, is setting this up. This is not the idea of, you know, deer like to drink, and I like God. So, you know, it's, it's, that, it's not a lighthearted idea here. The picture David paints, and, and we're going to see several vivid word pictures here that David paints in Psalm 42 to illustrate his sadness. The, the picture he paints in, in verse 1 and 2 is one of crippling thirst. It's not some nice little idea. It's not something you would probably, and I apologize if you have this in your home, but you probably should not put this on a coffee mug. This is not some nice little idea. David is dying. He does not know what to do. He is in, with crippling thirst. Again, this, the picture is of a deer who is gasping and stumbling while being pursued by a predator. The, looking over its shoulder, not knowing which direction to go, and, and feeling like it's going to, to fall over and pass out at any given moment. Or, or maybe this will help as well, the idea of, a, of coming through a potentially fatal journey through the desert where there is no water. This is where David's at. He is crying to God for aid. And he's like, God, I, you know how deer like almost die when they're being pursued? You know, they're, they're, they can't wait to find water, to find rest, to pause from this terrible situation. That's, I thirst for you that way. I'm dying. I need you. Please, please come. Um. There's really only been one time in my life when I have been like overwhelmingly thirsty. And it was, it was years ago. I think I was probably, I was probably in like junior high, maybe, maybe eighth, ninth grade. Um, went to a camp during the summer and one of the things they did 
still to this day, I don't know why. Um, they, they would hike everybody to these falls, and they were far away, and they were nice, they were pretty, whatever. Um, but the, and, and on the way there, you go down a path, and it's kind of steepish, but it's okay, and there's a rope here and there because it gets a little steep. And, but the way back, you don't, come, you don't come back the way you got there. And again, I don't know why. The way back is this. It's, it's in the North Carolina mountains, and it's, and it's like dirt and roots and rocks. And you're climbing up, you know, it's like, and it, it's, it's one of those things you, when you start, especially as a, as a relatively young child, you look up it and you're like, there's, there's no top to this. Like, I'm sure this just goes right into the clouds and just keeps going. Like, it's endless. And, and, but I started and, and my brother was at that camp and he and his friends are flying up this thing and, you may or may not know I'm not built for speed, and, but I tried to keep up with them, and, and I'm, I'm heading up this, this path, and I'm going as fast as I can, and I'm gasping, and like counselors are, the camp counselors are coming beside me, and they're like, where's your inhaler? And I'm like, I don't have asthma. What are you talking about? And I, and I don't, as far as I know, except when I'm doing that, and, and, I'm, and I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm going, and, 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 you know, feeling like any moment, you know, the slightest tip backwards, I'm just, you know, I'm gone. And, and I, get, I get to the top. You finally get to the top, and there's a, a bench, and, and I rested for a minute. But, you know, bring water. Why would I bring water? I mean, I'm going to a waterfall. Why would I bring water? But I'm, like, I'm incredibly thirsty, and I head back, and the rest of the way is like any probably normal hike. And I head back, and at the very end, where, where the trail headed to these falls, it, uh, right at the campsite, which is not small, it's a big campsite, is right at a, a river, a stream. And at the beginning of the, of the summer, at the beginning of the, the week, they mention, you know, hey, probably not a good idea to drink out of the stream. You just don't know what's upstream. You know, we don't, we don't dump anything in it, but you just don't know. You know, well, there was this one time I saw a dead deer. It was in the stream. Don't drink it. You know, it's just not a good idea. At that point, I fell headfirst into that stream. I like snorkeled into the stream and I, and I just drank and drank and drank. I was so thirsty. And this is where David's at. Not there's some end to this hike and he looks forward to the light at the end of the tunnel. David does not know how he is going to survive. And he comes to God and he's like, I'm dying. I'm stumbling around and I don't know what to do. I need you. My soul thirsts for you. David paints this picture of crippling thirst. But then he continues in verse 3, and to illustrate his sadness again, he, he paints a picture of ceaseless crying. And he says, My tears have been my food day and night. This is the idea of perpetual sadness, that, that idea of being so sad, so sorrowful, that the appetite is gone. Maybe also the idea of this, this day and night crying, that, that wailing, that, that crying to the point of, of even being nauseous. Like, uh, like I, I can't eat anything. There's no way. This is, again, where David is at. This is what he's dealing with. And, and he describes this as the tears of his eyes being his food all the time, day and night, unstopping. Verse 4, he, he describes, he paints the picture of internal emptiness. Um, in uh, the, the second phrase of verse 4, he says, I pour out my soul. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. This, this pouring out is, is one of, is almost involuntary. 
Um, it's the idea of David's soul being weak to the point, melted to the point that it just melts and drains away. He had his soul, instead of being sturdy or courageous or, or having great endurance, it's gone. It's gone. He cannot hold it together anymore. He can't do it. And his soul just melts away. It just pours out of him. My soul is dissolved. It, it becomes weak as water when I reflect on what I have and what I, what I have lost. This is the idea that David is, is, is experiencing, is describing here in verse 4. But then in verse 7, and, and this is a really interesting picture. In verse 7, if you jump down there, David says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Here, David is describing the, the idea of sorrow being suffocating. This is suffocating sorrow. Um, he, he paints this picture of, of one being under a waterfall, and maybe you've seen a video or maybe you've experienced yourself, that being under a waterfall and you can't get out and you don't know if you're going to survive, that I might drown, that thought in his head, I'm under the waterfall and it just keeps pushing me back under the water, under the water, under the water, and I don't know if I can get out. Or, and he continues with the same water theme and the idea of... Um, trying to get up to get out of the waves, but the waves keep knocking him down. The, the waves have gone over me, and David can't catch his breath. I remember one time, uh, I think it was soon after we moved here, we took our kids to the beach. I think it was probably Christmas Day. We went to the beach on Christmas Day when we got here because we were from Minnesota, and it was like 60, so why would we not go to the beach? We would not do that now. Um, I, I don't know if it was that time, but we, we took our kids to the beach, and it was relatively high waves for the Gulf. You, all of you are probably pretty familiar with the Gulf. It was relatively high waves. And I think it was Josh, I think it was our youngest, was going into the water, and, you know, the wave just went wham and knocked him over. And it's, you know, the wave was like this tall, you know. So to, like, you and me, you're like, this, this is nothing. But it caught him right in the face and just knocked him over. And then he tries to get up, but his, he's got little short arms and he can't get up. And he, like the next, he, he almost is up and the next wave goes wham, you know, he, and he's just over and over. And, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world, but you just go boop and, and you pick them up and, and they're fine. But, but in his mind, he was screaming and crying. In his mind, he was going to die. He did not know what he was going to do. The waves were coming over him and over him and over him. And again, this is the picture that David paints here. I am suffocating. I am going under the water and I don't know if I can get back up. I think I'm okay and another wave comes. I think I'm all right and another wave comes. We know from this time in David's life that it was a cascade of bad news. Absalom was a mess before he ever tried to take over the throne. He like killed his brother. Like it is, it is not probably something we would teach in our Sunday school class. It is rough. Um, and, and, and so David is, is in mourning, he's bothered by all this, and then Absalom is rallying the people around him, and David hears words of it, and he doesn't really do anything, and then David's off the throne, wave comes, and then he runs away, and he finds out that his most trusted advisor has now joined with Absalom, and another wave, this person he depended on is gone, and, and then he, he run, you know, he, he hears that now Absalom has an army and he's coming after him. Not only do I want you not on the throne, you know, no, no, not only does his son kick him uh, out of, of being, being king, but now he wants him dead. Another wave. I have to run. I have to sprint away or I'm going to die. This is wave after wave after wave. And, and I wonder if you have experienced that in your life. 
where it wasn't just one thing. I don't want to say that flippantly, but it wasn't just one thing. It was wave after wave after wave, and you don't know what you're going to do. I, I, I see no end to this. I, don't, I can't even catch my breath. This is happening so quickly. This is what David is describing, that, that uh, I can't breathe. I don't know what to do. And then um, in, uh, in a couple verses, um, and, and we'll, we'll note these in a minute, but the idea, the last idea here of crushing, crushing, excuse me, crushing isolation. We saw this theme last week in, in um, Psalm 13, but the idea of crushing isolation. David is kept away from where he wants to be and from what he wants to be doing. In verse 4, he says, and we already looked at one piece, but the whole verse, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise, and a multitude-keeping feasts. David was the king. He, could, he, he led the people in worship often. And he thinks he's, again, I, I used this, this picture last week. He's sitting in a cave, hiding for his life. And he's thinking about, you know, just yesterday, as it were, I was leading the people to the temple in praise. I was, I was rallying the nation of Israel in a feast, celebrating what God had done in our history. And now I'm, I'm here? What, what is going on? I, I, don't, I can't even process this. David is, is feeling completely isolated. He feels completely deserted in, in two verses. He mentions... Um, he mentions uh, uh, God's forgetfulness. Actually, I'm sorry, that's a little later. Verse 9, he mentions God's forget- forgetfulness. He says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Where are you? Uh, again, I mentioned last week, this, this episode with Absalom is after um, God has come to David and said, David, your, your, your throne, your kingdom is going to last forever. I, I got you. I, you, you're not going to just be for a while. You're not going to, be, going to be for your house. Your dynasty is not going to be for a couple hundred years. It's going to be forever. Forever. And again, David's sitting in a cave and he's like, this doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. What are you doing, God? Why have you forgotten me? But we see, really, we see something really interesting in this phrase. He, he calls God, he, he says, I say to God, my rock. How, why have you forgotten me? There, there might appear to be a contradiction or a, para, a paradox here that, that uh, David had the confidence to call God his rock, his place of security, stability, and strength. But yet he says, why have you forgotten me? But the truth is there's, there's no contradiction. We begin to see some glimmers of light here. Um, it was because David regarded God as his secure, stable, strong rock that he could bear his soul so honestly. And, I, and we touched on this again last week. Do you have this kind of honest relationship with God? All of us have gone through some period of sadness, not you know, this, we're not going to compare and, and rank our sadness, but all of us have dealt with some sadness to some extent. What do you do with that? How do you process that? Are you a, are you a fixer? Do you, like, get down and, and like, think strategically, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this and start coming up with a plan? Are you that kind of person? Or are you a, a, are you just a mourner? And I'm not, 
criticizing any of these inherently, but are you a mourner? Do you just kind of sit there and just are, are overwhelmed with the pain and, and overwhelmed with the sadness? David here, just like last week, David here shows us an amazing example of what we ought to do when we are sad, which is run to God. David does not take his sadness, try to pretty it up before he brings it to God. He just dumps. He just opens his heart and, and out gushes the, the sadness to God. Again, in verse 9, he, he um, mentions that God has forgotten him. And this feeling of, of desertion, this, this isolation is intensified by painful mockery. Um, the end of verse 3 and then verse 10, the same question is, is repeated, which is, um, my adversaries say to me all the day long, where is your God? I'd already mentioned several of David's seeming friends and many of his trusted advisors had deserted him and joined Absalom. They had switched teams. They had betrayed him. And, a, and apparently there was some amount of, of active taunting of David. Oh, David, hey, God told you your, your dynasty is going to last forever, huh? Right, right. Where's God? Where is he? He's not here. And, and David feels this. It's, it's not a small thing, this, this mockery to him. In, in, verse, in verse 10, I, I, I skipped over it a little bit, but in verse 10, he describes it as a deadly wound in his bones. That people are mocking him. Oh, you trusted in God, huh? How's that working out for you? Nope. Sorry, David. Guess God's not with you. Guess God doesn't love you anymore. Sometimes, sometimes people are that way. We see the reaction of, of Job's wife and Job. But sometimes we don't even need people to make these accusations, do we? Sometimes our own hearts do. We look at scripture, we look at how God describes us as his people, and we look at our circumstances around us and we go, no, no, no. There, this, this, something's not right. Something is, 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 a, this, is this some kind of joke? Like, God's going to take care of me? What, what is happening? This makes no sense. Sometimes we don't need people to ask us the question, where is, where is your God? Sometimes our own hearts make that accusation quite loudly themselves. But, but again, I, I, and I already touched on this briefly, but let's not miss who the audience of, of Psalm 42 is. Who is the audience? Who is David talking to? God. David's talking to God. The audience of this outpouring of intense sorrow is God. And just like David brought his anger in Psalm 13, David here brings his sorrow, his emptiness, and his isolation to God. Um, do not let, do not allow your sorrow to drive you from God. Instead, as we see here in Psalm 42, instead take your sorrow to God. Run to God. Cling to him. Wrap your arms tight around him and, and do not let go. We see this is David's response. But David does not simply just pour out his sorrow and then, you know, leave his, leave his hands open, wondering where God is, and walks away. David begins to speak to himself. David begins to confront his emotions. He doesn't let himself be carried along, but he keeps himself tethered to truth and reality. And he does this by asking some tough questions. 
David begins to preach to himself internally. Um, In verse 5 and verse 11, they're exact copies of each other. David begins and he, he asks these tough questions. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? David doesn't just surrender to the emotions of discouragement. He fights back. He doesn't say, my soul is cast down. That's how it is. There's nothing I can do about it. David says, why are you cast down? He, he, he takes his emotions. He takes his sadness, his sorrow, which none of us would say he doesn't have grounds to, to have. We would all go, yeah, yeah, dude, yeah. He takes his sorrow by the, by the shirt and he goes, why are you cast down? Why, why do you act this way? Why are you feeling this way? One commentator, Charles Spurgeon, says David um, rebukes himself out of his deep despair. To search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for grief. Self-ignorance is not bliss. In this case, it is misery. The mist of ignorance magnifies the causes for our alarm. Spurgeon describes David as rebuking himself. And I think, I think in our world today, I think this type of response is, is a little shocking. Our, our world of, um, our world of, of constant acceptance, our world where hard words are interpreted as hate and feelings are always valid and should never be questioned, Spurgeon's description of David scolding himself might feel harsh, but Spurgeon speaks both from biblical and also experimental knowledge, experiential, excuse me, experiential knowledge. I don't know, Charles Spurgeon was a a very famous preacher in the 19th century in England, and he had a reputation for being being a famous, powerful preacher with a a cheery wit and and cigar-smoking manliness. But Charles Spurgeon battled his entire life with discouragement. His life was full of physical and mental pain. At age 22, he was married and had twins and was the pastor of a large church. And and one day while he was preaching to thousands, someone yelled fire and started a panic, which killed seven people and left 28 severely injured. And Spurgeon was never the same. His, his wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent, we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. By the age of 33, physical pain had become a large part of his life. He suffered from burning kidney inflammation, as well as gout, rheumatism, and neuritis. The pain was such that it prevented him from preaching one-third of the time. Being overworked and stressed and then guilty about the stress began to take its toll. And these struggles were evident. They were apparent. They were in the public eye. And his critics added insult to injury when they declared his difficulties to be judgment from God. The pain, the opposition, being overworked, all contributed to persistent discouragement that at time was so intense, Spurgeon said, I could say with Job, my soul chooses strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. Spurgeon was no uh, stranger to pain, to hardship, to crippling discouragement. The story is told that there were many days that he just could not bring himself to get out of bed. But yet, 
Spurgeon, being so familiar with this, he, he knows the power and, and really the necessity of taking a hard look at your sadness, of not letting it just overwhelm you. David questions his emotions, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, knock it off. He doesn't do that. He says, he encourages himself with truth, and he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David preaches truth to himself. And he points himself to the only one who can make a difference. The, the one who makes all the difference. And he says, hope in God. These are, these are not the words of, of, of someone who, who says it tritely or simply. These are the words of one who holds on as a lifeline. This is all he has when David says, hope in God. David takes all of these reasons, all of the many reasons to be sad, to be discouraged, to be, to be completely leveled. And he compares them. He sets them beside his singular reason for hope. And hope wins. And it's not close. His circumstances are not good enough reasons to be cast down, to be leveled, to be, to be destroyed. When he thinks of the greatness of God and the salvation he brings. David says, hope in God, for he is my salvation. And this salvation, this idea of being, being saved is not, is not detached. It's not a change of circumstance even. The Hebrew in verses 5 and 11, as they mirror each other, it ties salvation to the physical presence of the Savior. It ties this coming of salvation to his face and to his smile. David reminds himself that salvation is coming because he is coming. God is coming and with him he brings salvation. Do you deal with sadness this way? This is not to say we can't be sad. That's not what this psalm says. But what it does say is we need to make sure that the circumstances of our lives, as dire as they are, and I, I don't, I know, I know many facets of many of your stories, and so I do not say this with any kind of levity or triteness. But do you understand that when you take your circumstances and compare them to the hope, if you've trusted in Christ, the hope you have in God, hope wins, and it's not close. Our pain, our sorrow, our discouragement, maybe you would even call it our depression, cannot be compared to the hope we have in God. David continues here and he said, and how will David know when he hopes in God? When he's moved from sorrow to praise. When he is moved from, from lament and pain to joy. But I think it's important to notice that the structure of Psalm 42 is, is incredibly authentic. It's important to notice that David confronts his discouragement both in the middle and at the end of this psalm. Sorrow resists encouragement. Sorrow resists hope. David ends his psalm still fighting for the joyful experience of hope and freedom from turmoil. This, I, 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 told, I told Jess as I was looking over this, I said, last week the psalm was very simple. It was like linear. Like, I'm angry, I'm going to pray to you about my anger, but I know you're good and I, I know who you are. 
Psalm 42 is, is way less simple. It's much more circular. And, and I would, and, and at least in my own experience, it's much more closer to where I live. When I, get, when I get discouraged or when I get sad or when I get frustrated, speaking to myself truth, which I need to do more, speaking to myself truth just doesn't like magically fix it, does it? It doesn't like, oh, oh, I didn't, I forgot God was good. Got it. Check. That, that's not true. And maybe that's true for you. And if it is, praise the Lord. That's not true for me. I doubt that's true for many of you. And we see that's not true for David either. He fights for joy in verse 5, and he slides right back down into discouragement in verse 6. And then he comes back around in verse 11, and he goes, no, I'm not going to let myself be pulled away. I'm not going to let myself be swept away by the sorrow. I will hope in God. It is a constant ongoing struggle here for David, and he fights, and he fights, and he fights. But you know what David ultimately finds? He finds God to be completely sufficient. He finds God and, and the hope he has in God to be more than ready to take on the task of his discouragement. Do you fight for joy? Life is hard. Life is hard. Do you fight for joy like this? Or do you allow yourself to just be swept away with discouragement and with sorrow? Hope in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this psalm. Thank you so much for who you are. Father, each one of us could, could give a number of reasons, whether in our past or, or maybe even right now, that we are discouraged, that we are sad, that we, that we are, are struggling through sorrow. But Father, I pray that you would bring your presence, you would bring your truth to bear on us and that we would hope in God, that we would cling to you, knowing that no matter what is happening around us, that you are good and you are strong and you are wise and you have not left us, you have not deserted us, you have not forsaken us and forgotten us, but you love us. And when we hurt, when our hearts are heavy with sorrow, yours is as well. But we can hope in you. We can cling to you and we can find you sufficient. Father, I pray that, that, would, this, that this would be true in my life, that I would preach to myself rather than just listening to my emotions. I ask that you would use this passage, use your word, use your spirit, use us, your people, in each other's lives to draw us back to yourself. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to us and that our hope in you is completely sufficient to, to encourage us to bring about praise and rejoicing in our lives. Make us more like you because of it and, ha and allow people to see this, this hope beyond reason, this, this joy beyond explanation and only be drawn to you. May, may you make us more like you each and every day. Amen.